All right, so we are continuing in our study of the Protestant Reformation, and we're in week four, John Calvin, and as we were kind of joking about a minute ago, um, you know, my son's name is Calvin, so that probably tells you something of what I think of the guy. Um, tend to have a positive opinion on him. Here are two quotes I, I like from Calvin. One, uh, Pastor Jay actually references, um, I've heard him reference it more than once, but the second one. But the first one, there is not a blade of grass, there is no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. And I put that there because I think sometimes people think of Calvin as this kind of dour, grumpy theologian that was very, you know, against joy and happiness and really grumpy sort of guy. So you didn't name your son after Calvin and Hobbes? No, but I did. I did. The very first toy that my son had was a little tiger. I bought him, bought it for him when he was born. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't out of my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> Although, I don't know. Think of the behavior of my children. He's probably the least like Calvin of the three of, in Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> but um, I know this is kind of like, it sounds like parental bragging. Maybe it is. I just, my, my son Calvin, he, uh, he led Alethea to the Lord the other day, my three-year-old. He prayed with her, and he's like, no, not really. I mean, she's three. I don't think she really understood. But he, he came back, and he's like, yeah, she said amen. So that means that she agrees. <laughs> like, okay, cool. <laughs> and he's like, now, you know, now can she get baptized? Like, no, not yet. <laughs> anyway, well, like, okay, you're on your on your way to being a theologian. I like it. It's good. Um, but anyway, I put that that quote there because yeah, Calvin has this sort of reputation being kind of grumpy, being dour. Um, I don't think that's necessarily fair or true. The second one, this is one that. I know that Pastor Jay has referenced um, in his sermons before, but true wisdom consists in two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And it's the kind of idea behind this is, as you know yourself, you know your own sinfulness. And as you know God, it, you know yourself better too. You see your own sinfulness and your need of God. So God becomes greater and you become smaller the more you study these two subjects. And he, to him, that's that's kind of where all thought goes to. Studying and understanding yourself and this and studying and understanding God. All right. Oh, I forgot to change the bold on the which week we're on. But we're on week four. I have up on the board um, the, the kind of the five major points of the Protestant Reformation. And we definitely see these. If, if in anybody of the early reformers, um, Calvin definitely is emphasizes these. But sola scriptura... Calvin really uh, emphasized the scriptures. I, I loved, I love his preaching. I love his his study of the scripture. He he uh, wrote commentaries on almost all of the New Testament and much of the the Old Testament. Um, he preached through the Bible. We'll, we'll get to this moment later. But when he left Geneva, which was kind of a tumultuous relationship, Calvin in the city of Geneva. So he gets driven out of Geneva. He's gone for three and a half years. He comes back. And he picks up on the verse, the passage in the verse that he had, he had left on. So he comes back to preach. We don't know what passage it was, but he left off at Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And he picks up on Romans chapter 3, verse 24, whatever it was, and just keeps on preaching the scriptures. That's, that was Calvin's commitment to the scriptures. Um, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christo, sola Deo gloria. Calvin's known, obviously, for Calvinism, um, an emphasis on, on predestination. 
Um, for Calvin, this is, a, this is an emphasis on sola gratia, that salvation is by grace alone, that it's not our own efforts. It's not our own um, free will that leads us to God. Sola fide, Calvin would say that faith is a gift from God. It's given to us by God. So it's a gift that we can have faith. And it's, it's Christ alone who, who saves us, not ourselves. And sola deo gloria, very emphasized in Calvin's thought as well. So uh, moving into John Calvin's life. So, Jean Calvin, he was French, in case you didn't know, but he was born in 1509, about 60 miles north of Paris. His father was a notary to the ecclesiastical um, court. So, his father had a lot of connections, connections with the church, and, with, um, and so Calvin was very religious from an early age, and um, very opposite of Luther. So, you guys remember Luther was going to study theology, I mean, was going to study law, um, and then, because his father wanted him to, and then he had this lightning strike moment where he studies theology instead, right? Well, Calvin was studying theology, and his father realizes, you're going to make a lot more money studying law. So his father tells him to switch to law, and he does. He's the obedient son who switches to law. So he switches from theology to law. He studied in Paris at the age of 12, and then at, at the same university that Erasmus came from. So this was a kind of a hotbed of Reformation thought. And uh, but at age 17, he was withdrawn transferred to Orleans to study law instead. Um, and then, unlike Luther, he obeyed. So Calvin was a natural scholar. He loved books. He loved study. This is kind of a theme of his life. He's going he's gonna to want to go study, and he's going to keep getting roped into being a pastor. Um, and he feels like this is his duty and calling. But um, what he really just wants is a quiet room to study. <laughs> I think he was probably an introvert, if we're going to use those kinds of, you know, those kinds of terms, they wouldn't have thought of it that way back then, but if we're going to use those kinds of terms that probably fit him. Um, but anyway, he's a natural scholar. He loves books. He loves studying. He studied the Greek and Roman classics, and he published a book on Seneca's philosophy huh, before he became really a theologian. This book didn't sell very well, but it was highly respected, <laughs> but I think he actually lost money on it. Uh, but we don't really know a lot about Calvin's conversion. I'll read you a passage from Calvin here in a second that describes it. But he doesn't really talk a lot about himself. So Calvin, Calvin's life and Calvin's individual um, experiences mostly come from other sources. But his conversion, um, we don't have a lot on. But he had some influences in Paris and in Orleans. So Pierre Robert, who was somebody who published a French edition of the, of the Bible, that Calvin wrote a, um, a foreword to. So Calvin had some hand in it. I don't think he actually translated any of it. But he had some hand in this. Um, and I don't know how to pronounce this guy's first name, but Walmart. What's that? Melchior. Melchior. That sounds good to me. Um, Melchior Walmart, who is his Greek professor, um, who have gotten a little bit of trouble in terms of his Reformation beliefs. So, but what Calvin wrote in his commentary on the Psalms is that God, by an unexpected conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. I'm going to read his a longer account here, but this is from his his commentary in the Psalms, the preface to his commentary in the Psalms. <coughs> God drew me from obscure and lowly beginnings and conferred on me that most honorable office of herald and minister of the gospel. My father had intended me for theology from my early childhood, but when he reflected that the career of law proved elsewhere very lucrative for its practitioners, the prospect suddenly made him change his mind. And so it happened that I was called away from the study of philosophy and set to learning law. Although out of obedience to my father's wishes, I tried my best to work hard 
Yet God, at last, turned my course in another direction, by the secret reign of his providence. What happened first was that by an unexpected conversion, he tamed to teachableness a mind too stubborn for its years. For as I was so strongly devoted to the superstitions of the papacy, that nothing less could draw me from such, such depths of mire. And so this mere taste of true godliness that I received set me on fire with such a desire to progress that I pursued the rest of my studies more coolly, although I did not give them up altogether. Before a year had slipped by, anybody who longed for a pure doctrine kept on learning, coming to learn from me, still a beginner, a raw recruit. A couple things you can notice there. Um, you can see already his theology involved in there. It's, it's God who drew him. It's God who, who woke up his mind and made him teachable, not Calvin's you know, study bringing him to it. And, but this, whether this happened very suddenly, whether this happened over a long period of time, we don't know. We know that he had some, some influences that were Reformation influences. Paris at that time had a lot of, a lot of that. But however and whenever it happened, he became a lover of Christ and his gospel and would soon dedicate his mighty intellect to the Reformation cause. As you see in that quote, very quickly, people are coming to him, even though he's kind of a new recruit to the cause, he's incredibly intelligent. So it doesn't take him very long to start becoming a leader. But he's mostly leading through his writing. So he's starting to write pamphlets, write articles. He's refuting both the Catholic Church and like the Anabaptists and the, Re the extreme Reformation. Um, if you remember from, from last week when we talked about the Anabaptists, and this is going to be important in Calvin's thought, remember in um, Munster, right, where they, they took over this city and it was chaos and disorder and a lot of gross immorality that all took place in the city. So Calvin, when he thinks of Reformation, he wants an orderly, moral Reformation, not a crazy, radical Reformation. And he's going to try to, and this is a lot of where his trouble comes from, He's going to try to make that happen in Geneva, which is kind of a city not well known for its orderliness. And so he's going to cause, that's going to cause a lot of friction in Calvin's life. Calvin doesn't have an easy life, for sure. So Calvin flees France. So at first, France seems to be on a similar path to the Reformation that Germany had taken. Um, a lot of, if you, one of the reasons the German Reformation succeeded was the German princes. And there's, there's this feeling of German nationalism as all this German money is going to is going to uh, going to Rome to build these buildings and to support the the papacy, and uh, there's this feeling that the, the German people are being fleeced. Well, those same feelings are are present in France also, and there's people who who kind of like this idea of of taking off, breaking with the Catholic Church, but you also have a French king who's very devout as a Catholic. He's not rigid, but he's devout as a Catholic. Um, and there's going to be some things that happen in France that just turn the tide against the, the reformers and very badly, it goes very badly for them. They get really massacred at many of, um, St. Paul, St. Bartholomew's Day massacre, if you've heard of that, led to, I think, tens of thousands of people being killed really in their homes and their beds as their, a riot kind of started and they went house to house killing French Huguenots. Uh, that's a little later. But the Reformation never takes hold in France, and partly is they really crack down hard on it. But anyway, many of Luther's complaints of papal corruption and excesses resonated in France. Um, I said that, but in 1528, one of the events that that led to the to the French government really cracking down was there's this famous miracle-working statue of the Virgin Mary that people would come from all over the place to come and be healed. 
supposedly. Well, somebody decapitated it. Um, decapitated the Virgin Mary and the and the baby that she was holding, the Jesus. And this was seen as a you know act of gross sacrilege, right? And that was the kind of thing that Luther was trying to prevent happening in Wittenberg, if you remember. He, that's not how he wanted to do the Reformation. But these kind of things started happening. And Francis I, the French king, he was very devout. And this, this pained him. But to him, this, he like wept at this statue being decapitated. Um, the Pope began to apply pressure, telling him to stamp out the Lutheran heresy. And perhaps the Reformation was too aggressive. So in, in the University of Paris, the, while these things are happening... You have the people with Reformation um, um, sympathies are speaking very directly against the church and very directly against the king and those sorts of things. And this kind of leads from, it looks promising, to huge crackdown on the Reformation. And it doesn't go well for the Reformers. So, um, Calvin found himself on a list. He was blacklisted. List of troublemakers. And they're looking for these guys. And this, this sounds like it comes out of a movie, but he literally escaped through the window with tied bed sheets um, out of his window, got on a horse and escaped town. Um, he's still writing. Uh, he's writing little pamphlets um, expressing his theology. He's writing the Institutes of Christian Religion at this point. Don't know if you've heard of that. It's well worth the read. A lot of the, you know, a lot of uh, the reformers' writings today, we might say, are a little, a little dated. Um, but Calvin's not so. Like his commentaries are are very valuable, and his theology is very valuable. And pastors use them, and for good reason. So um, anyway, he writes the first edition of the Institutes of Christian Religion. It ends up being a two-volume huge thing, but it was initially made to be very small. He, as throughout his career, he kept doing different editions and adding on to it, so that you could hide it in your coat. That was the whole point, because it's it's kind of illicit. You're not supposed to have it. And so that you could use it and you're sharing the gospel and pastors could hide it and not be caught, that sort of thing. Um, anyway, constantly on the run, like many French Protestants, he fled to Switzerland. And his, his kind of idea, his hope, what he wants to do is support the Reformation by writing. He's going to write theology. He's going to write exegesis of scripture. He's going to su support the Reformation that way. So he finds himself in Geneva, in Switzerland. And Geneva... It was a city that was allied with the Reformation, but was fairly, um, it was kind of known for being a moral cesspool. Um, it was a kind of a disorderly, corrupt city. A lot of the city officials were known for their corruption, and so it wasn't a great place to be. Um, and he had no intention of staying in Geneva. Uh, poor, poor Calvin, really. This is not what he wants. But this guy named Farrell, um, he hears the author of the Institutes of Christian Religion is in Geneva. So he goes to him and says, you got to help us here. The Reformation needs somebody like you. And Calvin's like, no, I'm going to go to Strasbourg, and there's a university there. I want to teach and study. And Farrell, this is what Farrell told him. He proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of my studies, which I saw, if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. And by this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from the journey I'd undertaken. He basically curses him. He's like, your studies will be disaster, and you'll never be at peace. You won't get... And he's like, okay, I'll stay. <laughs> he stayed and pastored in this city. And kind of predictably, it doesn't go very well, especially initially for Calvin. So 1536. So he is 29 years old, if I'm remembering my math right. No, 27. All right. He settled in Geneva, and he became a pastor and a lecturer in theology. And I don't know if you've studied um, 
any, read anything about the life of Jonathan Edwards, but as I kind of studied Calvin, I know Calvin comes before Edwards, there's a lot of parallels. So Jonathan Edwards' battles had to do with communion. That's the same battle that Calvin's having, and it's this sort of, it's this idea that, that there's, so in Calvin's theology, that we take this for granted, I think, but this was, this was newer in this day, or um, novel in this day. So the Catholic Church, when you talked about what the church is, the church is visible. It's, it's the organization. It's the institution. It's the hierarchy is the church. But in, Ca- in Calvin's theology, the church is invisible, right? It's the body of Christ, of believers. And so communion wasn't just to be given to, to anyone. If you didn't, um, if you were living in gross sin or gross immorality, you were to be refused communion. That wasn't the way it was practiced in most places. So that's what—that's the battle Calvin's going to have. It's the same battle Jonathan Edwards has, and has a lot of grief for here too. And this is this is really where it all comes down to: is should you refuse communion to people who are in adultery, who are abusing their wives, who are getting drunk every you know every night in the tavern, and including these people are the rich and the powerful, and you know the people in the government, right? The city government. So um, Calvin is not the kind of guy who. Is going to bend on this. So Luther is this like very loud, bombastic, um, sort of in-your-face sort of guy. But Calvin's this quiet, um, stu- <laughs> stubborn. He actually calls himself stubborn. He says that that was one of his faults that grieved him a lot. So maybe we can fairly call him stubborn. But he's not going to bend if he thinks he's right, and he's his convictions right. So Calvin doesn't, and this leads to a lot of trouble for him. So. He insisted that those living in gross and blatant sin be denied communion, including some of the rich and powerful. So this gave him very powerful enemies right from the start who don't like him and they want him out. So also often, this was also a reoccurring thing, um, his nationality is used against him. So imagine you're living in Switzerland, which they were, and you're having all these French refugees come in and it's changing your city a lot. And so there's a lot of vitriol against the French who are overrunning our cities and Calvin is French, so that is also used against him. If you're really patriotic, um, you don't want these dirty French people coming in and taking over our cities, and so that was, that was used against Calvin very often, his nationality. Um, and so you had a lot of poor, reformed uh, you know, people who are living in, in, the, in the Swiss cities here, um, and that was all, we really want this French foreigner telling us what to do. So, let's see, one of the preachers, so the things kind of fall apart, one of the preachers in Geneva is imprisoned for speaking out against the drunkenness of city magistrates. He actually names names. So uh, this isn't Calvin, but there's lots of preachers in Geneva. Calvin's one of them. And he, uh, he actually speaks out against the drunkenness of city magistrates. And so he's thrown in prison. Um, Calvin was banned for preaching because the, the, the council, uh, and this, there's a theological reason here, the council wanted him to stop using bread for communion and use wafers. And the reason was, is that bread left crumbs and these are like sacred crumbs and it's a wasting of something sacred. But Calvin refused. He's not gonna bend and he's against that kind of a view of you know the bread. It's not the body of, of, of Christ, literally. And so Calvin um, refused to compromise there. So he's banned from preaching. And what do you think? Do you think Calvin stopped preaching? No, he didn't stop preaching. He kept preaching. So he's excommunicated, not excommunicated, but he's kicked out of the city. Um, Farrell, the same, the guy that recruited him, is also kicked out of the city. And I wonder if Calvin 
actually was like, okay, phew, good, I'm gone. This is great. Now I can go to Strasbourg, which is where he goes. So that's where he wanted to go originally. He wants to study. He wants to um, to write. That's what he wants to do. He doesn't want to be involved in all the, the city politics um, and being a pastor. So he goes to Strasbourg. But, but he gets to Strasbourg. He looks up Martin Bucer, who's the leader of the Reformation there, and um, asking, is there a quiet place for me to study and write? And Bucer calls him a Jonah. You're, you're, you're trying to run from your, <laughs> from what God has called you to, running away from the ministry. You're a Jonah, and he gets pushed into being a pastor in Strasbourg. So <laughs> he can't get away from it um, in the French refugee church. And this actually goes much better. So his time in Strasbourg was much happier. In addition to preaching, he teaches at a Reformed college. He begins writing commentaries on the New Testament. Um, in 1540, he marries Idolette, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, de Bure, who's a widow with two children. It's actually kind of funny. I don't know if I could find the quote. But um, there's this funny quote about what Calvin was looking for in a wife. It was all arranged for him. He, he wasn't really looking to get married, but all the other reformer, reformed leaders and pastors were saying, you really need to get married. And he's like, okay, well, here's my qualifications. So if I can find them, I'll read them to you. And then the first one they found didn't speak French. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not going to marry somebody that I don't even speak the same language with. So they, they found him somebody who was a, had, was a, re, actually that Calvin had converted, who had two children, was a widow. Um, uh, it's, in here too. it's funny. It's worth, it's worth hearing. I think the quote in that book was fuller, but I can probably find it. As for marriage, I am not one of those infatuated lovers who are captivated by a pretty face and kiss even her vices. The only beauty that interests me is that she should, she should be modest, obliging, not haughty, not extravagant, patient, and solicitous for my health. Um, <laughs> so a very practical view of marriage. And um, anyway, so he marries her. It, um, from all accounts from Calvin, it was a happy marriage in the sense of they, they loved each other, they were devoted to each other. When she dies, he says he lost his best companion in the world. But it was not a happy marriage in the sense that they were very in very bad health. Um, their the one child that they have together dies after a couple of weeks. And um, she dies after nine years of marriage, but most of that is kind of on a deathbed, slowly deteriorating. So it was a very, very hard life. Calvin had bad health his whole life, a lot of stomach issues. And so um, it was a difficult marriage, but they, they did seem to be close and love, love each other. So in 1541, this is before his wife and children die. They, they get married in 1540. In 1541, he's going to go back to Geneva, and then she ends up following him there. But in 1541, after three and a half years in Strasbourg, Calvin is invited back to Geneva. So <laughs> things in Geneva are falling apart. It's a mess. There's all this fighting among the, the city council. Um, there's doctrinal um, there's doctrinal fights going on. And Calvin's is like, well, he's this big name and he's this powerful guy that could bring, clean up the city and bring things back together. Calvin's like, you got to be kidding me. I'm not going back to Geneva. Um, so Calvin said, I would rather die a hundred deaths to take this, than take this cross. That was his quote to, to Farrell and Bucer. But 
Farrell and Buser said, no, no, this is your duty. You're getting, you're running away from your duty. You have to go back. Geneva's your calling. <laughs> like, please, no. But he does. He goes back. He believes that this is what God has called him to do, even though he hated this place, really. He, he did not have a good time. So he goes back. And I, I told you this at the beginning of the class, but he goes, I love this. He picks up on the same chapter and verse he had left off three and a half years later. Everybody's kind of expecting this kind of fiery sermon blasting the city. But he makes no look. My my job is to preach the word of God, and he picks up where he left left off and keeps preaching through through scripture verse by verse. So Calvin did his best to establish an orderly society in Geneva. At times he he overreached. By overreach, I'm not you can you can we can argue about whether he was right or wrong, but overreached in that it didn't go well. So um, for one for instance, he tried to do away with taverns and replace them with abbeys, where one would spend time reading a, a French Bible instead of drinking. So his idea was we can take all the taverns, put Bibles in them, and instead of people going to the tavern to drink, they could go to the tavern to read the Bible. Well, that wasn't popular, <laughs> and there was an outcry against that, and the council kind of forced uh, you know that to be overturned. Um, and again, his, his nationality is a point of contention. His Geneva is even more so being overrun by French immigrants, because France is really cracking down on the on the Reformation. So he began to have protests at his sermons. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen people protest a sermon, but they would try to drown him out. There was a libertine party is what they were called, um, who wanted liberty, but liberty meaning, you know, moral liberty to do what we want to. And so they would start to shout him down. They didn't like his rules again, drunkenness and dancing, and they wanted to see an end to his, his reforms. He actually tries to resign at one point and the city refuses it. So yeah, he, I guess he could have just left, but he didn't. Um, so same same battle pops up again over communion. So in 1553, Calvin refuses communion to a leader of the Libertine Party uh, because of his, his living in sin. Um, and the, the council orders him to give him communion, and he refuses to back down. He's like, I'm not going to give him communion, sorry. And so Calvin expects to be expelled at this time. And it looks like the votes really look like they're against him, but his allies kind of um, uh, campaign for him a little bit and he, he narrowly stays. They don't expel him from the city, uh, but he's in a very tenuous place at this point. In 1555, however, um, the tide turns. So the, the city elections come in and Calvin's supporters sweep the elections. Um, they win overwhelmingly. And this leads to riots and protests in the streets, which the, one of the leaders of the Libertines actually leads an armed attempt to take over the government. He, he takes the, this, um, what do you call it, scepter away from, from one of the city councilmen. And um, so then the army comes in basically and kills these guys and executes them for trying to forcibly take over the government. And um, so this, this kind of changes things for good. For Calvin and Geneva. So Calvin now has a lot more power, authority, and, and ability to push through his desired reforms. So some of the things he does, he creates a, he created a mission organization with the purpose of supporting the Reformation in France. They smuggled, kind of like smuggled Bibles and smuggled commentaries and smuggled um, theology books into France, um, publishing things in French. Again, just, this is one of the uh, one of the themes we've seen in the Reformation, right, is getting things into the language of the people rather than Latin. Big thing for Calvin as well. Um, and through Calvin's influence, the Reformation in France booms again to about 10% of the population. But then again, the, the, pop, the, 
the response is aggressive. It's not just the government. Um, the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre was this kind of mob that got a list of, of known Huguenots and, and went house to house um, slaughtering people. And at least thousands were killed in that, but tens of thousands total were massacred. And that's, again, when you think about politically, Reformation takes place, takes hold in Germany, takes hold in England, um, takes hold in Switzerland, but it never really takes hold in France. It, it had success in France, but they were just killed or fled, basically, is what happened in France. Um, same thing in Spain. I don't think it ever had as much power in Spain, but Spain was also pretty aggressive in cracking down on them. So Calvin, Calvin carried a very heavy lo workload. In addition to teaching three times a week, he preached twice every Sunday, and then one week he'd preach every day on the weekdays, and then the next week he wouldn't. So you're talking about his preaching load. Uh, preaching teaching load is about 10 times one week, and then five times the next week. <laughs> so pretty heavy load. Um, his, his way of, he, he just basically, um, we don't have very many of his sermons at all because people couldn't keep up. He didn't have stenographers that could keep up with his, mm -hmm. his sermons, um, which is what we have in other people's sermons where people are writing them down as he goes. But he just spent tons of time reading and studying and he didn't actually like have them written, but he preached from the text after having his, he written and studied on the, the text for that day. Um, and he, he did his best also to support and advise the Reformation in France, England, and Scotland. There's some letters from him to, um, to English reformers who are about to be killed by Bloody Mary. Um, and basically it's this encouragement to stay firm, even if it means your death for the glory of, glory of Christ sort of thing. So he's, he's supporting things from a distance. But in 1564, his body fails him. He wrote that, I have no other defense or refuge for salvation than um, God's gratuitous adoption on which alone my salvation depends. Again, you see that emphasis on salvation is of God, not of, not of myself or my own will. At his request, he doesn't want his, um, his grave to become a, like a relic or a place like that. So he is buried in an unmarked grave. We don't know to this day where Calvin's grave is. You can't go visit it in Geneva. We don't know. And um, his disciple, Theodore Beza, took leadership in Geneva. All right. Now, that was a whirlwind. Um, but any, any thoughts? I have some, some other places I want to go. Any thoughts or questions or observations about Calvin and his life and ministry? Can you give a maybe one or two sentence um, summary of the, the name Huguenot? How, who are they named for, and why did they become associated with Calvin? I don't remember what the name means. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else does. Okay. But they, they, that was what the French Protestants were known as. And since Calvin was French, he, he, had, he had a lot of influence there. He was smuggling literature into France to support the Huguenots. Um, so he, I mean, he was living in Switzerland, but he was French. Mm -hmm. and that's the association. Are you looking that up, Nancy? I'm trying to, but who knows how. Uh, you said that his messages weren't written down, so we don't have much to go on. Did in in his theological studies, did he write? Oh yeah, he he wrote a lot of theology and. I mean, his commentaries would take up a bookshelf, basically. Okay. Okay. So we have that, yeah. and that gives us a decent idea of 
of what would have been in his sermons. But we don't have a lot of content of his sermons. Any other thoughts or observations or questions on Calvin's life and, and ministry? Are you going to deal with the 4.5 point Calvinist thing? Maybe, at some point? maybe. You know, the, here's the thing about here's the thing about Calvin is um, I'll read you some quotes here. Like that that organized system that more comes after Calvin. Yeah. So Calvin wrote you know these two volumes of theology very long, and I I think it's maybe three pages is on predestination. So when we think of Calvin, <laughs> we all think of predestination. And he did believe in it, and he emphasized it. But it wasn't for him. Um, he, he, his biggest section, for instance, is on prayer. The longest section in the Christian Institutes is on prayer. So, um, again, we think of Calvin as this kind of theologian up in the ivory tower. But his writings and his preaching was for the intent is, to, is for normal people to be able to understand Scripture and, and God's truth. So, yeah, if we get there, we'll get there at the... Um, Towards the end, I, ha- I we'll get we'll probably talk about it. But um, all right, a couple things I do want to talk about. One is Michael uh, Servetus. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce his name, but this is sometimes something that's brought against Calvin. Um, we talked about Luther and and his response to the to the Jewish people. Uh, Calvin, a lot of times people see as this guy who who burned heretics, um, and it's kind of sort of in some small sense true, I suppose, but mostly mostly not. So Michael Servetus was this guy who, um, actually, Calvin had contact with him before he left France. He had conversations with him and, um, and, and attempted to win him for the gospel, attempted to, to bring him out of his heresy. So Michael Servetus was somebody who denied the Trinity, among other things. Um, so kind of in the extreme Anabaptist sort of wing, I suppose you could say. And he went, he went from city to city kind of preaching this, this stuff. And um, he, he, went, he had false names and assumed identities and all, all this sort of thing as he, as he went. Um, he got caught once. I think, this was in, I think this was in Germany, but it may have been in like the Netherlands or something. And then he, he kind of recanted um, to get out of being killed and then fled again. Um, but anyway, he shows up in Geneva. To hear Calvin preach, and people recognize him. So he, he's running from the law because everybody's trying to put him to death. That's what you did to people who denied the Trinity. Um, now I'll call you a heretic, but I won't burn you at the stake. But um, anyway, so he's 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 fleeing, and he shows up in Geneva. He wants to hear Calvin preach, so he does. But he's recognized, and he's arrested. And um, so they they put him on trial. The trial is basically first, what was he teaching? Second, is that a heresy? It is. And so then he's sentenced. And he's sentenced by the council. Calvin is um, is um, a witness in convicting him of heresy throughout all of this. And then he's burned at the stake. Um, now, Calvin petitioned. This wasn't actually a time where Calvin was doing very well with Geneva. This was actually kind of the height of his second time in Geneva where things were going really poorly. Calvin petitioned that he had his head be, be beheaded rather than burned at the stake, but they refused that petition. And Calvin actually spent hours and hours in this guy's uh, company trying to convince him of, of orthodoxy to, to leave his, his heresy, and he didn't. So again, I think sometimes people bring that against Calvin. I don't think that's really fair, to be frank. Um, 
that's kind of taking our cultural assumptions that of freedom of religion and separation of church and state. There was no place where Michael Severtis wouldn't have been convicted of heresy. He actually was kind of convicted of heresy. I, I think it was in Italy. I don't remember if they got hold of his body or they just burned him in effigy. But he was kind of convicted and burned twice. So he was burned by the Swiss, and then the, the Catholics did the same thing um, to, to Michael Severtis. Um, but just kind of awareness of one of the big knocks against Calvin as that's brought up. I think in comparison to what we talked about with the Anabaptists and Luther, I think that's actually fairly tame, to be honest. But any thoughts on that? All right. Um, I also wanted, I didn't put this here. I wanted to, to give you some, I agree with this. This this So this is my approach when it comes to preaching and teaching out of the Bible. But I, I think that Calvin has a lot of wisdom here on how we approach biblical issues. So I tagged several pages I wanted to read here. Um, see if I can find them all. So Calvin, um, Calvin really believed in sola scriptura, but he was very committed to where scripture is silent, that I should be silent, and where scripture has mystery, I should leave it as a mystery. He only wanted to preach what scripture really says. So, for example, he says this, it is better that I should leave untouched what I cannot explain, a frank acknowledgement of his own limitations before the mystery of Scripture. Um, Another quote here. Um, (laughs) This reminds me of, I think think he's probably referencing (coughs) Augustine here too, but Calvin considered the question of what God was doing before he created the world, um, and his answer to that was busy creating hell for those theologians with over-curious minds. Like, the Bible doesn't tell us, so that's it's leave that alone. Uh, later Calvinists went had a lot to say about um, you know the the order of, of God's determination of everything, but that's not actually as present in in Calvin as it is in like Beza and those following him. Um, let's see, I think I had one more. Let's see, this is, this is from Timothy George writing on it. But for all of his reputation as a theologian of rigorous logic, Calvin preferred to live with mystery and logical inconsistency rather than to violate the limits of revelation or impute blame to the God of Scripture. Um, so this is, this is Calvin's approach to theology and approach to preaching. Is he is, He's preaching what Scripture says. He's trying to preach it as clearly as he can and stick to as clearly as he can to the literal meaning of Scripture. But he really has this commitment to not go beyond it. So I say I bring that up because I think a lot of times when people think of John Calvin, they think of somebody who was very logical, very structured, put everything together, um, taught all the minutiae. I don't think that's really a fair representation of Calvin. Calvin was committed to Scripture and to the Word of God and sticking with what it said, um, and that was the way he approached things. So any any thoughts or reflections on that? Sounds like I might like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's amazing how that philosophy, that thought, mm-hmm. ran against uh, desires of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, it just seems kind of odd. Mm-hmm. In the Christian world, supposedly. right? Yeah. yeah,
he was very organized in oh, his yeah. thought process. Mm-hmm. And sometimes today we'll use the idea of the mysteries to kind of leave it alone. And there are things that are mysterious in this world, and we don't mm-hmm. need to speculate about them. But it's an excuse sometimes today to not really dive into what Scripture does say mm-hmm. or to try to think through deeply about the things that are revealed. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and obviously, he had a great mind, and Calvin was committed to what Scripture did say. So he does go very deep on the mm-hmm. things that are revealed, which right. make it seem like, oh, he's getting into the minutia. Well, he's mm-hmm. just digging in very mm-hmm. thoroughly. There's a balance there. Yeah, yeah. We could use that as an excuse, I suppose. Yeah. But on the on the other hand, um, God's chose to reveal some things to us yeah. and not others. Yeah. And um, when we when we do too much of that work ourselves, we run the risk of um, of speaking our words rather than yeah. God's. Yeah. And I think that's what John that's what Calvin really wanted to avoid. Yeah. He wanted to preach what is revealed. But yeah, I I, I agree. We could use that as an excuse to. Yeah. Well, who knows? Who knows what the Bible says about yeah. whatever? Yeah, good people on both sides. <laughs> yeah, um, I haven't read Calvin, so those of you who have can help me. Um, uh, oftentimes, you hear people say, "If the Bible teaches things that seem logically contradictory, then that's an evidence against the truth of it." But I, I, I would want to say that logic is created by God, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's created to describe this world, and so God Himself would sort of not not um, contradict logic, but transcend it mm-hmm. in a way that our logic wouldn't contain all the mysteries of God, if you want to say it. So it's not an evidence against God. You're right. Apparent logic contradiction just means God is beyond. Yeah, one of the one of the things that um, Calvin, when Calvin talked about Scripture, he had this very high view of Scripture, so don't hear this as the opposite. It's not how he meant it at all. But he talks about Scripture as... Um, it's it's as if God is a, a mother baby talking to a baby. Yeah, yeah. It's it's God on our level. There's a condescension in Scripture that um, similar to what Pastor Jay was talking about. And this is very much Calvinist thought that um, truth comes from God, and we couldn't know truth about God unless God had revealed it. So revelation is God coming down to our level so that we can understand it, and that and that's again preaching the Scripture to people is a consequence of believing that, right? That this is something that God has actually revealed and that there are some things that are beyond us and that Calvin would totally affirm that. And if God had wanted us to understand what was beyond us, or if we could understand what was beyond us, he would have given it to us. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think Calvin would probably want to affirm the the goodness of logic Mm -hmm. and the trustworthiness of logic Mm -hmm. at the same time to... Um, point to the fact that God is beyond that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and he was a he was a logician in that sense, right. um, certainly. But I he wasn't a logician to the point of going beyond Scripture. He was willing to live in tension. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Any other thoughts on on Calvin up to this point? Maybe getting into this, maybe we have some already. Calvinism seems to me uh, developed uh, after the basic teachings of Calvin. Yeah. He didn't have a thorough Calvinism yeah. as we see it today. Yeah, there's some debate about that. I, 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 I think that's fair. Um, Calvin definitely believed in predestination. 
I, I think he. I think you would even say it's fair to say he believed in double predestination from his writing, meaning he predestined some to salvation and some to damnation. Um, sometimes people debate whether Calvin believed in limited atonement. I, I, I think he's rather silent on it, frankly. But Beza and those after him, I think they're taking Calvin to his his logical. Um, Station, right? Like this is where Calvin's ideas lead to. But I think, yeah, Calvin never actually specifically taught some of the points of Calvinism. He never taught against them either. So I wouldn't say it's, we, I wouldn't say there's evidence to say Calvin was a four point Calvinist. I've heard people say that. I don't think there's evidence that he's necessarily a five point Calvinist either. He, um, I think he, he taught what he believed. One of the things on predestination where Calvin was different was he moved it from providence where it normally was in theological writing. So it has to do with God's general or ordaining of the world to, and he moved it into soteriology, so into salvation. So it typically wasn't included in the doctrine of salvation. It was typically included in God's um, ordination, foreordination of the world, his providence, his knowing all things, his sovereignty, that area. But he, he included it in salvation. And so that's part of why there's a stronger emphasis on predestination of salvation in Calvinism than in other systems, if that makes if that makes sense. You would, de you would define Calvinism, though, more than just a synonym for predestination, because, I mean, as far as I think of, when I think mm -hmm. Calvinism, I right. think of that tulip acronym, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about man's depravity and right. the grace needed from God in order to be saved. And obviously, the predestination aspect of it comes in with the electing of God mm -hmm. and, and you know, the and those kind of things. And, but there's also the other end of the saints will always be saved because he's doing the act of salvation. So it's a little bit, I would think, more of a broad scope when you're thinking of Calvinism right. than just predestination. Or do you? Yeah, think I, I think the problem with the term Calvinism is that it, it kind of takes an aspect of his theology. Yeah, yeah. And makes it the whole, yeah, thing, the whole thing, which yeah, wasn't necessarily yeah. true. Where the, the five points of Calvinism come from is in a debate later on, after yeah. Calvin dies, yeah. when Jacob Arminius is arguing against certain points. Sure. Who, he actually had a high view of Calvin. He, he's, he said Calvin was, I, I, I forget the quote, but he had a very high view of Calvin. So he wasn't against Calvin, but the five points of Calvinism were the five points that he had issue with. Sure. Oh. So that's where those come from. It's not John Calvin saying these are the five most important yeah, things. Yeah. Um, that's oh, wow. it's more of like these are the controversial things, mm -hmm. I suppose, is what you could say. Huh. So I, I, I don't I have a problem talking about Calvinism, but in some sense, I want to free Calvin from Calvinism in that yeah. there's more of him yeah. than yeah. these five points. Um, yeah. I've read that Luther actually wrote more on predestination by oh. far than Calvin right. ever did. No, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, Luther had just as strong a view on predestination. Again, most of the reformers did. They were they were committed to the doctrine of predestination. Um, they were very influenced by Saint Augustine, who also emphasized those things. And they one of the one of the primary issues they had with the Catholic Church is what they would say is semi Pelagianism. They had come to a cooperation of faith and works, cooperation of grace and works to be saved rather than only grace. And predestination predestination is part of that, right? So if you're if you're teaching that you're saved 
because you chose God, then you're you're getting some of that credit, some of that glory that goes back to this also for your salvation, rather than saying it's a work of God. So that's that was central to the Reformation, certainly. Uh, but it, more strongly emphasized in Luther than Calvin. Yeah. So in your terminology earlier, is it possible that some of those little bit controversial doctrines like limited atonement where you said he didn't really address it particularly, that he left that in the mystery category and his followers mm -hmm. later on used his logic to take it out of the mystery category? Some people argue that. That's argued. So there's not a consensus on that. Okay. So some people say there's no evidence Calvin ever believed or taught that. Some people point to certain things that Calvin said um, and said he certainly believed that. But he didn't emphasize it when yeah. we say that. So yeah. it, there's debate. Roger Olson, um, he's a really good church historian um, who's an Arminian. But he, in his writing, he argues that Calvin wasn't a five-point Calvinist. But certainly it's, it's Theodore Beza, who we mentioned at the end, who, who organizes some of these thoughts and then more, more strongly emphasizes some of these things in Calvin. Yeah. I think we could credit Jacob Arminius for forming these because he's the one that picked out the things that he objected to mm -hmm. right. in five points. Right. Right. He yeah, and so then these five points, the tulip thing, mm -hmm. came as a result of right. Jacob Arminius' right. objections yeah. to Calvin's teaching. Yeah, I, I kinda wanted to save this for the end, but we're we're here, so let's go let's go with it. <laughs> um <clears throat> the reason I want to save it for the end is because this is what everybody thinks of yeah. with Calvin, yeah. and that's fine. It's it's true, but um, he's more than more than that. But wait, so the yeah. just to clarify, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going the opposite way. Um, unconditional, way. unconditional. There we go. There you go. I, I went into Arminianism for a second. Go ahead, um, Jeff. Just to clarify, when we're talking about semi-Pelagian, mm -hmm. Pelagius was the guy that was maybe in contrast to um, the early church fathers that taught more of what the reformers would would teach, and it's, it's a kind of a synonym for Arminianism, right? And Arminius, Jacob Arminius, was the guy that had issues with these five points that you're writing up here. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily the 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 sola, is that correct? right? Yeah, yeah. So a couple, I'll, I'll, yeah. yeah. We'll we'll talk about a couple of those things. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll go back to Augustine for a minute. Yeah. But um, so Augustine, fourth century, fourth and fifth century. So, thousand years before Calvin, right? More than a thousand years before Calvin, there was this British monk named Pelagius, who taught that man is not born with a sin na sinful nature. He's born neutral. Um, and that it is possible for humans to live a perfect life without sin and without needing God's grace. But the reason that people sin is because it's their parents' fault, basically. It's because you had bad models. So Adam sinned, and then his, his children kind of followed his model. But it's possible to be saved without God's grace. Gr grace is there to help you if you need it. But you might not need it. <laughs> that was kind of that was kind of what Pelagius taught. So Augustine um, was the opposite side of that. That we're only so if you know anything about Augustine's life, I think we did talk about this sometime in the class. But he struggled with sin. <laughs> um, that his whole famous statement, um, you know, 
Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Yeah. <laughs> he, he struggled with his sin, and he, he, in his experience, it was, it was God making him alive that led him to, to being saved, not his own efforts. And so he, he, he really strongly emphasized, again, predestination, and God is the one who draws you to salvation rather than it's your efforts in any sort of way. Um, and Pelagius was condemned by the church, and Augustine was affirmed. Um, but throughout time, from the, especially from the Reformers' perspective, the, um, the Catholic Church became semi-Pelagian. They wouldn't have called it Pelagian because you're not being saved by your efforts, but it's a cooperation of efforts and grace. So the church wouldn't have said that you're saved by your own efforts. They would say you are saved by grace, but that God gives you the grace to be able to attain salvation. If that sort of makes sense. You're still saved by grace, they would have said. But God gives you grace to be able to do these things, and you're also saved through the sacraments. So these, these are objects, of, these are uh, means of grace. So from the Reformers' perspective, that is a, that's not, maybe not full-on Pelagianism, but it's, it's semi-Pelagianism. Yeah, Adam? I was going to make that point that you may hear, people may hear the terms monergism, synergism, mm -hmm. and that's what this is what it's referring to right. to say, you know, monergists believe that it's all God's will. God's will. Rather than a cooperation. And a right. synergist believe mm -hmm. it's a cooperation between right. sorry, man's will and God's will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, anyway, uh, I, I, I don't remember the year, but Arminius was 1600s. I, I couldn't tell you. I think it was early, 1620s or something like that, but I'm, I might be wrong. So, Anyway, it doesn't really matter, but after Calvin. Are you still being recorded? Because I'm going to show on the opposite side. Oh, yeah. I, I'm a bad kid. I'm not close enough to the microphone. Sorry if you're listening to the recording. Um, and you can't see the board. But the So basically, so actually Jacob Arminius was a Calvinist in the classical sense, what we mean by Calvinist. But he lost the debate with somebody, and he converted to what now we call Arminianism. Um, and what, Ar, what Jacob Arminius is uh, real... So Calvinists want to emphasize God's sovereignty, that God is totally sovereign, and that we don't want to have any questions against God's sovereignty. So human will can't contradict God's will. So it's God's will that's supreme. That's the Calvinist um, concern. But the, the Arminian concern is God's justice or God's goodness, right? And so for Arminius, he saw um, predestination, unconditional election, as uh, a violation of that because if God is predestining some to heaven and some to hell then God is not just and God is not good that was, that was what Arminian, Arminius was really concerned with so he, he debated with the Calvinists and these were his points of contention so that's, this is where Calvinism comes from is Arminius's uh, objections to Calvin's theology or at least the theology that followed from Calvin but um, from a Calvinist, sometimes, sometimes we like to pick and choose with the, the points of Calvinism. Um, it's kind of hard to do that, to be honest, but the, there's a logic to it. So first, it's total depravity, and that is that human beings um, are unable to save themselves. It doesn't mean that they're as bad as they can possibly be. Um, it just it means that human beings, um, every aspect of us is depraved. Every aspect of us is affected by sin. And that if left to ourselves, we would be damned. But we cannot save ourselves. So God chose before the foundations of the world to save some. 
and it's unconditional. And that's the emphasis here is it's not that God's like looking forward into the future and saying, seeing which ones will believe, because then that would be a condition. It's based purely on his, his will, uh, unconditional election. Limited atonement is that the ones that, that God chose to save are the ones for whom Christ died. He didn't die for everyone's sin. He died for the ones whom he elected. And then irresistible grace is the ones whom Christ, for whom Christ died, he drew to himself irresistibly. They're, they're not going to not be saved because God chose them again. And then perseverance of the saints is those for whom, those whom Christ drew to himself, he, per, he, he keeps, he, pre, he preserves them. Again, it's not that they're preserving themselves, it's that they're preserved by, by God, by the work of the Spirit. So those are the five points of Calvinism, um, and there's kind of a logical progression to them. Um, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on them. They're controversial. I think, like you said, I think a lot of this flows out of Calvin and the other reformers' view of God's sovereignty. And mm-hmm. The way I've heard it expressed, I think I like, is this tulip is really rooted in in their view of God's sovereignty, how how it works and how it and the outplaying of that. And I think also back to your point of living in the mystery. I think, and this is just my opinion, that some of the the Armenian response is wanting to explain that mystery that they that in our human understanding mm-hmm. and trying to reconcile God's sovereignty right. with man's apparent free will to make choices. How do we mm-hmm. how do we how does how does God sovereignly elect people but we have to make that decision in and of yeah. ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think they want to try to explain that in a human understanding where I right. think Calvin and some of the other reformers were, were more comfortable in not try, not being able to understand that fully in our human mind. Yeah, I, I I wouldn't disagree with anything you said, but I would say it could go both ways, too, in that um, I, I think a um, very clearly in Scripture that it, it, it does teach that God works everything in accordance with his will. Um, I, I Predestination is a difficult doctrine to get around, I would say, if you're reading scripture. Um, but there's also very, I mean, throughout scripture are calls for people to repent, calls for people to change their mind, calls for people to, to do those sorts of things. So those are two truths that we have to hold in tension in some way. And if we say that there is no, we have no ability to make any sort of choice, then maybe that's that's flushing it out too much too. Yeah. So there, I, I think there's some some worthiness of taking these two truths in tension. I don't actually think logically that they're incoherent. I think they're difficult to understand, but I don't think they're incoherent. Did you have your hand up? No. No. Okay. I I feel like over here I'm, I'm missing you. Maybe it was you. <laughs> just and then really, you had your hand. A really quick thing yeah. on what Adam is saying that um, I think if you just read the Bible. And I wonder what Calvin said about this. You you do see what at least appear to be instances of of libertarian free will mm-hmm. in people. And I wonder what he because you know you could you could use these five points to say well that's just a you know that's mystery. But mm-hmm. I mean you would have to contend with the the passages that seem to be I'm okay with the mystery, but mm-hmm. they would seem to have real libertarian free will mm-hmm. on the part of creatures. I, I don't know. Yeah, I I think. This is not Calvin. This is more Augustine. Um, 
but I think it's also reflected in Calvin. Um, but they, they would say things along the lines that human beings do have free will, but they don't have free agency. And the difference is that free will is you are making free choices to do what you want to do. And there's nothing that you're doing that you didn't freely choose to do. But you don't have free agency in that you, you cannot choose, and we all have experienced this, right? You can't choose to stop being a sinner, can you? <laughs> and in the same sort of way is that you, you and your own, left to yourself, you cannot choose Christ because of your slavery to sin. That, that would be how I think Augustine Calvin would answer it. So it takes the work of God, and this is a key Calvinist point, is that the faith itself is a gift. I think that's, and there's, there's, there's some, in terms of the grammatical, um, the, the grammar behind that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, there's some legitimate debate over whether that's, how, it's actually a difficult passage in Greek, but, um, but that, that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Mm-hmm. The Calvinist reading of that is it's the faith is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Mm-hmm. And so even our choosing God is not a result of our will, it's a result of God graciously giving us faith. If that, yeah. that sort of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Carol and then Sam. The good modern exposition of the five points is done by R.C. Sproul mm-hmm. in um, The Holiness of God. He's not an Arminian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. <laughs> not, um, or wasn't, yeah. He was. The, um, oh, the other thing is, a former pastor of mine used to put it this way, God makes our willer willing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. He, he. Yeah. They. They wouldn't say that it's um, contrary to your will, no. but that God changes your will. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Sam. That was essentially my point. That, uh, one way to put it is, we have free choice. We have the ability to choose. God gives us the want to. Mm-hmm. 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 And there's an, apparently there was an old black pastor who years and years ago that said. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, this is this is especially true Luther, but it's all grace. It's all grace. It's not even yeah. even your wanting to or your desire, your it's it's all God's grace and God's gift. Um, was their emphasis. So I think a lot today, a lot of people do struggle with this, and I get it. But the emphasis of the reformers was, a, it's it's purely grace, purely a gift of God, all the way, no no little tiny corner that you can claim, and it's purely for God's glory. It, this is God working for His glory, no no human credit here. One way that that I think is helpful when we're talking about. Is, is to think of it um, when you were mentioned earlier just when you're reading parts of scripture that are a legitimate call to repent and a call to be able to you know, have your will involved in making a choice for the Lord um, it, those are genuine calls to do that mm-hmm. and so I think sometimes when we look at this it's helpful for me to think when we're talking about how is it that a person actually ends up choosing to follow the Lord, we're looking back and seeing the Lord was involved in being able to change their will Mm -hmm. to be able, he he chose that person before time began and all those kind of thoughts that 
it's clear in Scripture that that's true. You can't get around predestination when you're reading the Scripture. It's it's all over. But at the same time, when we're pastorally talking to somebody who's struggling with choosing to follow Christ or not, those calls to repent are legit mm-hmm. or, 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 or genuine calls to do that. And you have to engage and, and make the choice. But then... It, you can kind of step back and look maybe almost backwards in time in, in mm-hmm. that sense and when you're looking at these kinds of things. Now, this is mm-hmm. how that happened right. when we're looking at those. Mm-hmm. I think it's helpful when you're looking at different parts of Scripture that you're right, they're not contradictory. This isn't like what Pastor Jay was saying, A is not negative A or whatever. You know, that right. these, aren't, these aren't contradictory, but there, there, are, there is a tension there. Mm-hmm. And we can't... We talked earlier about the Lord having to condescend the truth that mm. He's revealed to uh-huh. us in Scripture because He's God and we're not. And so because He's infinite and we're not, we have struggles thinking, like we can't think like God or understand uh-huh. like God. So there is a trust factor that needs to happen in order for us to say, you can hold these tensions in your mind, God, and and, and, and understand them perfectly. We can just believe the truth that you've given us that, yes, you have called us to believe, and yes, we know when we do believe, it's because you've chosen us to believe. Mm-hmm. And so those, both those truths are in Scripture, and we, mm-hmm. we believe in both. Just to be fair, because I, you know, I, it's not when when we're talking about Arminians, they don't deny election. Again, just like this, the soul is here. The emphasis here are on the on the first words, mm-hmm. not on the second words. So what an Arminian would say is conditional election, which is that. God chose to save those who would believe. And so that's the condition, is the condition of whether you believe. So, yeah, I, I, I say that just in terms of fairness, because predestination is all over the Bible. Um, but it's not that Arminians are like, no, it's not. <laughs> they have a different understanding of it. But one, one interesting thing on Calvin's theology where I disagree with him, because I'm not a, I don't believe in infant baptism, but it's related to that is um, for him in his defense of infant baptism. He's how do you know that this infant isn't predestined to be saved? So it was almost like a um, you're, you're, you're baptizing someone who's already elected, perhaps. Um, this is kind of an interesting, <laughs> interesting. I'm like, oh, I never have thought of it that way. But obviously, then you probably are also baptizing people who weren't. But um, which is probably, you know. One more quick. Uh, you probably didn't want to get into this discussion as much as we are, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to get into it. I just my my main point here is I I wanted to. There's more to Calvin than yeah, Calvinism, yeah, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> but I don't mind going there. But go ahead. So one of the passages I personally struggle with, just to give context to what we're saying, like mm-hmm. like the biblical passages where like Jesus, for example, you know, it, it seems to be lamenting over. He's talking mm-hmm. about the Jews. You know, I long to gather you. Right. Um, as a hen gathers, mm-hmm. you know, her chicks, but you are not willing. And he seems mm-hmm. to be lamenting that fact as right. though it's somehow beyond his control. Mm-hmm. And this is God talking. Right. So I wrestle with that personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think, again, I don't think that the teaching of Scripture is that human beings do not have the ability to, to make choices um, or, to, or to choose or have any sort of a will. Um, but I also think the teaching of scripture is that God is sovereign and that he works all things to the counsel of his will. And, um, we have difficulty living in both of those 
truths. And that's where, whether Calvin believed it or not, or what, I mean, uh, what, what Calvin believed or he didn't believe, that's part of why I really appreciate his emphasis on, on teaching scripture, is not to go beyond revelation. So if we can, if we can conclusively come to a, a um, if we can conclusively come to a conclusion, that's not too <laughs> redundant, uh, on, on a teaching of scripture, then I want to teach it with authority. If I have thoughts or ideas about what I think might be true, then I want to make sure I say it that way. That I think this could be true. In your humble opinion. Yeah, in my humble. But there's a difference between saying, this is what I think could be true, and me saying, this is what Scripture says. And so when I'm preaching or teaching, I, I try to distinguish between those two. I don't mind, I don't think speculation is bad, but um, I, I, we need to speculate within the bounds, is what I'm saying. Yeah. And we might have different views on what's conclusive and what's in the bounds and what's speculative. But yeah, I want to close this out, but. Um, just quickly, I wanted to say uh, one criticism that you'll hear from from Armenians is that well, Calvinists don't don't emphasize, and Calvinism doesn't emphasize uh, missions. Missions. Yeah, that's or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Evangelism. Uh, evangelism. Yeah. Right. And I think the response. And by there may be some what some will call hyper Calvinists that don't, but I think what. The reformers would say, and what true Calvinists would say, or even you know, they would, you know, I don't like using that term, but would say that God not only predestined or chose the ends, but He also predestined the means, mm-hmm. and that's what you know, in the Great Commission. And right. That if we're being true to what God has called us to do, we are preaching and teaching yeah. the gospel and evangelizing because mm-hmm. that's how but, God prescribed. Yeah, if you look at the history of missions, you're going to see people. We talked about John Calvin's, you know, attempts to bring the Reformation into France. You always see people like Jonathan Edwards, um, Adoniram Judson, and you know, William Carey. They were all Calvinists. So um, <laughs> it's not been true that people who are Calvinists are like, well, God will just predestine it so we don't do missions. That's not been true um, at all. So definitely not the case. All right. Um, I'm going to pray quickly um, and uh, let, let you guys go here. So I kept you a little late. I don't think they're out yet, so I'm still a good kid. Uh, Father, thank you for, for the life of John Calvin, and thank you for his, his, his deep desire to be faithful um, to the preaching of your word, um, even when it was really difficult and hard and when he faced opposition. And people really did hate him for, for, for being for being who you called him to be. But thank you for his, his model of faithfulness. Um, Father, we also want to be people of the word, and we want to be faithful. So help us to avoid um, error. Help us to avoid uh, doctrines that, that would lead us away um, from, from true doctrine, from loving you, and from loving your word. Um, give us wisdom. Father, I pray that as we go through this sermon series, that you'll give us wisdom in living in a difficult time as well. Um, we want to be faithful. Um, we also want to be um, loving and compassionate. Um, help us to, to do both of those things. They're not, not in contradiction, um, but in faithfulness. Um, Father, thank you again for the, the group of people here and um, just the, the love that they do have for your word and for your truth. And we pray in your son's name through the spirit. Amen.